0: Please follow along as I read Mark 7, 24 through 37. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. He could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your child. And she went home and found the child lying in the bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of Dagopolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him, to lay his hand on him, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Epithetha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly and Jesus charged to the, to tell them Jesus charged them to tell no one but the more he charged them the more zealously they proclaimed it and they were astonished beyond belief saying he has done all things well he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak
1: thanks kim well last week i preached what would have been as scott kind of pointed out the worst Mother's Day sermon of all time when we, uh, we talked about legalism, um, which we described as trying to put an outward band-aid on your inward brokenness. That was one of the ways that we described it. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they were critical people. They were critical of Jesus because his disciples didn't wash their hands in the ceremonial tradition like they did. And Jesus said, you're hypocrites. Because it's not what goes into a person's mouth that defiles them, but defilement originates in the heart and is what comes out of the mouth, in fact, is what Jesus said. The Pharisees were, in effect, they were voiding God's word by adding something to it that wasn't into it, which is what we do every time we find ourselves kind of drowning and swimming in legalism. Now, what we just heard Kim Powell read from the Gospel of Mark, is a follow-up story that actually takes everything a step further as Jesus steps outside of his Jewish tribe and is approached by two Gentiles who would have been considered defiled by the nation of Israel, by all Jewish people. You can can think of it like like going to Michigan, right? Like all of you think those people are defiled somehow. Or you can think of it like as an Ashlander having to having to travel to Worcester or something, to where you, you, know, you just there's a little bit of pushback going on there because they're not part of your customs and laws, right? And vice versa. Now, speaking of Ashland, man, we did this amazing work day yesterday. And I wanna, while I'm at it, I wanna, I wanna thank uh, Tammy. I wanna thank uh, Sarah Hunt. I wanna thank Kelly Cook, who just led this thing. Did a great job. We were able to go around with all the downtown buildings and all the different areas. We had a bunch of people helping us from the community. To, uh, to, to kind of beautify it and uh, make it look good for the spring. And we did that. So what happened was I show up and, uh, you yeah, know, I'm not the handiest guy in the world. I'm not going to lie to you um, about that. Um, but, uh, you know, I pull up and, and you know, the, one of Sarah Hunt, you know, kind of gets me and Danny Kraspinski, DK, and says, we want you guys to be kind of the floaters and find a job that's going to fit you guys. And so we walk down to the lot and we see Scott Long, just, you know, in a tractor, just kind of driving that thing around like he's like, done that since birth. And uh, it was amazing. I had no idea, dude. That was, that was impressive. And so I look over at DK, I look over at Danny, and I say, um, I say, dude, like, like, do you know how to do that kind of stuff? And he looks at me and he goes, uh, no, I don't, I don't know how to do anything like that. And, uh, and he said, and, and, and I'm an Ashlander too, and he said that like, I should know how to do that, and I don't. And I was like, um, "Like, will you be my friend today, you know? Um, because you know what I said to DK? I said, you know why we don't know how to do that, Danny? Because we're finesse guys. That's what I said. I said, we're, we're artists, right? And so, of course, our job, was to go to the little park here right next to us and we did some painting and painted some graffiti off the walls and we painted underneath the picnic table and the benches. Now, before we started, the idea was let's just, let's just paint it and let's just see how it looks on the outside because maybe we won't have to get under there and like break our backs you know, and try to paint the inside. But after we painted the outside, it looked so bad because you could kind of see the inside. And so the big struggle was, do we do it or do we not do it? Some people will notice, some people won't notice, but it bothered me so much that I said, all right, Danny, it looks like me and you, and more specifically, you are going to have to get under that table and <laughs> finish painting that, and he did it. And, you know, not, not a couple of tall guys here, so it would have been pretty easy for either of us to do it. But, um, gosh, you know what's interesting about that in relation to what we're going to be talking about this morning is, is this, do we approach... Jesus like that? Do we think, um, hey, close enough. Who's going to notice? Is God, is Christ going to notice me from all angles and all sides? One of the questions we're going to ask and hopefully answer this morning is what makes a person acceptable to God? And more specifically, what should our approach be in that? And even when I say that, even when I say like, what is acceptable to God, and what is your approach when you come before God? Um, some of the things that go through our mind can be automatically, without even thinking about it, and defaulting to it, is that we start to recount little things like, "Well, let me think about how many times I've, like, I've prayed this week," and uh, you know, "Let me think about how much I've, I've, you know, tithed or given in the last month or so," or you know, "How much I've served." Right, man. I was just, you know, I was like, I, I was going crazy yesterday with all the mulching. Right. Or, or, you know, how much I've attended church, how much I haven't missed a service. Um, So, a lot of times, by not even thinking about it, because this is the default of the human heart, is that we believe we're acceptable to Jesus for other things besides Jesus only, right? Because what the gospel tells us is that we are acceptable to Jesus because of Jesus and nothing else. That's where we gain our standing. With Jesus, And so our main point this morning is this, simply that those who come to Jesus as they truly are, receive all that Jesus is when they come to him by faith, right? And so what we heard Kim just reading as we picked up in verse 24 there, what we see here is Jesus traveling into a Gentile region, which was strange for him in his earthly ministry, but he had the hope of not being seen. And we're not told why, That is exactly, but we can guess it was because he needed some time away to recharge. And again, something that we've kind of seen a theme of that we want to remember is Jesus has become just enormously popular, right, in his earthly ministry. So the demands on his time have become pretty overwhelming, which meant that it was important that he established a pattern of rest in prayer, which actually, as we even just look at the very first verse here, should be a model for our own lives, Because, you know, most of us have been taught uh, to work hard, right? Not a bad thing. Most of us have been uh, taught to work hard. But few of us ever see rest as being equally as important, do we? But what's interesting is that God gave us both work and rest, and when we ignore one at the expense of the other, we are following, we are not allowing neither to fulfill the role in our lives God intended them to fill, so, in other words, if Jesus rested, then we, we should treat it as something godly, not something guilty. But we should treat it as a discipline and a blessing that comes from the hand of God. Why? Well, because we see a, a model and a pattern of Jesus resting when he was in the middle of the busiest season of his life. He, do, he didn't just keep like hammering it out and pushing a little harder on the gas pedal. That's not the pattern we see. So there's a couple of interesting things happening here as Jesus attempts to do just that. As he attempts to rest, as he attempts to retreat. Now remember, last week, last week he condemned the Pharisees for holding to a tradition that said eating food with unwashed hands was what defiled a person. And now what we're going to see is Jesus taking this a step further as he finds himself smack dab in the middle of two people who would have been considered Unclean, unwashed and defiled by the Jews. Verse 25 says, he gets a knock on the door by a Phoenician woman of Syrian descent, not a Jewish woman, who falls at his feet and it said she begs him, she begs him to cast a demon out of her daughter. So in contrast to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day who came to Jesus in order to find something against Jesus, this woman comes humbly, to him. And not only humbly, but she comes humbly and boldly because, by the way, humility is bold. Humility is boldness in and of itself. Understanding, she came to him with the understanding that Jesus may not help her. She didn't have a guarantee of that. She knows who she is, which is not Jewish, but she begs him anyway and puts herself at his mercy, believing that only he has the power to deliver her daughter. Have you ever been in a situation like that before? Have you ever been in a situation like that? All of your options are gone. You're done. All you can do is throw yourself at the mercy of another person. You guys ever been in a place where everything's been removed and now there's nothing left in your power? What's interesting is we don't usually look back at times like that with much fondness But these are the moments that cause us to realize God has always been our only true option. And by the way, if you think you're in that position right at this very second, you are. You always are. We always are. You are a phone call. Listen, you and I are a phone call, an email, a text message, a conversation, a car ride, whatever, away from finding yourself in a position that you have absolutely zero control over. All of us. This is the story of a woman with a disturbed child that she is absolutely powerless to change. She's a mother, there's a fear, there's an anxiety, there's a worry in her, but she has nothing for it. So she comes desperately before the feet of Jesus. And look at the shocking reply that Jesus gives her as we look in verse 27. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Well, I mean, what do we make of that, right? I mean, at first glance, it sounds like Jesus is being a little harsh and a little unkind. And that's because a dog was a derogatory name to call a person, kind of like it is now, right? But actually even worse because, you know, today you could call someone a dog and be like, you know, no, I meant like Lassie. You know, I didn't mean it that harshly, right? But back then, dogs were not trained to be pets like they are today. They were unclean, undomesticated beasts, which as a cat person, I still believe is true. I'm not going to lie to you, you know, (laughs) don't hate, don't hate. All right. You know, in fact, when we went to, uh, we had our missions team go to Romania last year, Dave Dernlin, one of our former elders, uh, led that team. And uh, man, he said, stay away from the dogs. He said, you're going to see lots of dogs kind of roaming around the streets in the area. He said, stay away from the dogs. They're scavengers. They carry diseases. They're, they're violent. Um, so Dave said, man, he, he told us stay away from the dogs, which again, for me, you know, was like telling You know, like telling a Cleveland Brown fan to stay away from, you know, the the Steelers fan, right? It just, it was something that didn't even need to be said to me from where I'm at with dogs, and I'm just going to stop it about dogs right now. Um, But here's what Jesus meant. What Jesus meant was that his mission was first and foremost to the nation of Israel, not the Gentiles, who were referred to as dogs by the Jewish people. In fact, in Matthew's account of this story, in chapter 15, 24, Jesus makes this statement He said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, eventually, his apostles, his disciples, uh, would start a work to the Gentile nations after his death and resurrection. But his mission, the mission of Jesus, was to the Jewish people first, right? So that's something that's clearly understood as we make our way through all four of the Gospels in the New Testament. Now, here's what I think is interesting, is that the woman is not surprised... She's not surprised at all by Jesus' statement in verse 27. She doesn't even appear to be offended by what he says, but she understands her place as an outsider. Look how she responds when we pick up in verse 28. She says, but she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Now, a couple of things. Uh, This woman knew the deck was stacked against her. She was under no illusions. But in desperation, she knocks on Jesus' door and she begs for help. She knows she's unclean in their eyes. But she also knows that nobody else can heal her daughter of this unclean spirit. And so in her reply to Jesus, she's saying, look, I acknowledge that I'm considered a dog by your people, but I'm also a dog that you just mercifully invited into your home she's saying i may be a dog but dogs that are allowed in a person's home have access to the crumbs that fall from the table and so what we see in this very uniquely is that this was a test of faith in courage and she passed the test because it takes faith and courage to believe that jesus is your only hope and that he is going to receive you by faith alone and grace alone. And what it says here in verse 29 is that Jesus commends her for her answer and says, because you answered this way, not just because she gave the right answer, but because of your faith, she sa- he said to her, your daughter now is healed. And when she got home, it was, it was true. The demon had left her daughter. So Jesus, once again, as we've seen many times as we're going through the book of Mark, is he acts unexpectedly, right? He kind of blows away our preconceived notions. He challenges what people of all all different spaces and races, he challenges what people think about him. He looks with compassion on the lowly, on the undeserving, on people that are nominalized, even by his own people. And then he does the same thing with a man suffering from deafness as we get to verse 31 where Jesus, he hits the road again. And he finds himself in the region of the Decapolis, which was a Gentile association of sorts of Greek city-states, right? So um, this was a place that Jesus would have traveled to and would have found himself again in a place would have been mostly Gentiles, mostly Greek-speaking Gentiles. And this time, a deaf man with a speech impediment is brought to Jesus by a group of people, we're not told who, just a group of people that, again, here's here's another word that ties us in with with, with the last story. The people beg him, they beg him to lay his hands on their friend. But unlike his response to the Phoenician woman, he doesn't put this man to the test. But he does use an unorthodox method of healing that probably tested the faith of those who were surrounding him, him and observing him. It says he removes him from the crowd, and then he puts his fingers in the man's ear and spits on his tongue, right? I mean, I don't know. I talked to Zach a lot about what goes on during his private practice. He's never said he's done this. Right? He's never said he's done this. Why does Jesus do this? Right? I mean, I mean, did he forget his doctor's bag? Did he leave the medicine back at the house in Capernaum with, with Pete? I mean, like, what was the reason for this? Well, no. I think what's significant to note is that, first of all, he touched the man. What's significant about this, with the man being a Gentile, is that he touched the man at all. Remember, the Pharisees, just like a minute ago, judged Jesus for letting his disciples eat with unclean hands. And then what we just read is Jesus reminded a Gentile woman, who was considered a dog by the Jewish people, that her daughter was made clean. And now we see Jesus, again, keep taking everything a step further, touching a disabled Gentile's ears and tongue, right? So that tells us something about the character of Jesus, doesn't it? Because once again, he demonstrates that defilement, it's an issue of the heart, not of the hands, right? And I I just wonder how this might humble us here in our towns, in our day and age, when we think of the people we avoid that might be of a different socioeconomic status, or even worse yet, have a different racial status than we do. And you know what? That should sober you. That should sober us. Because classism or racism, even flippantly, of any kind, is satanic. That's what it is. First John 3.10 says... By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. That's pretty clear. That's pretty clear what kind of waters we're swimming in, if there is even a hint of classism and racism in us as people that have been washed clean by the blood of We dare not treat anything or anyone defiled that God has washed clean by the blood of his son that has cleansed us in our defilement. And then in verse 34, it says Jesus looks to heaven and he prays and he sighs. He sighs. Jesus sighs. Some believe the sigh was an indicator of his grief over seeing the state of this man suffering under a disease that came as the result of sin and fallenness. And he uses a Greek word I'd rather not pronounce. That means be opened. Kim just read it for us. She pronounced it well. And it says the man's healing immediately returns. And his speech comes back clearly. No speech therapy classes. His tongue was released. He speaks plainly. His healing is total. It's complete. And then like we've seen up to this point in the ministry of Jesus, he charges them not to tell anyone again, which we've learned was because he was intent on his identity being released in the way that he wanted it released, in stages, so that his popularity, as we keep seeing, wouldn't keep affecting his mission. But like we've seen before, they refused to listen, and they couldn't keep, it says, from zealously proclaiming what he'd done. And then in their astonishment, they make this amazing observation in verse 37 when they say, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Now, to give some context, let me go back here for a second. Because remember, when Mark was writing this gospel, which, by the way, is a book that was dictated to him from the apostle Peter, this was not written with us in mind. He wasn't thinking, well, man, I got to watch how I phrase this word because, you know, those people in 2017 at Substance in Ashland need to understand what it is that I'm trying to get across. I mean, that, that's not what he's doing. But the context of this is that they would, have, they would have taken a lot of what they're writing about the acts of Jesus and gotten it from what the Old Testament prophesied about what Jesus was going to do. Because Jesus is fulfilling his mission. And he's fulfilling his ministry as the promised Messiah. So what Mark is doing here is he's, he's leaning heavily on Old Testament passages that prophesied his coming. And uh, this one reminds us of a passage from Isaiah 35 where it says this, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So everything that was prophesied about Jesus' mission and his ministry, it's coming to pass as he presents himself as the Messiah that comes to preach repentance, that comes to heal the sick, that comes to cast out demons. And it leaves people in astonishment. As it says in verse 37, he has done all things well. Now this calls us to ask some questions that I asked at the very beginning that I want to flesh out a little bit, which is this, who is acceptable to Jesus? What does Jesus, who does Jesus receive? Who does Jesus hear? What kind of person does Jesus touch, right? Right? Because as we're going through these first seven chapters, we're seeing something interesting about the way that Jesus comes on the scene and the way he receives certain people and rejects other people. That should be really, really significant to us as we try to apply that to our own lives. But I think in this particular story, I think what this tells us is that these are the people that are acceptable to Jesus. Number one, the persistent. The persistent. This woman begs Jesus. She not only begs Jesus, but she argues with Jesus. She doesn't take no for an answer. He is her only hope. And of course, there's a lesson in this for us, I think, in that listen, God, God doesn't grow tired. He doesn't grow weary of our prayers, but wants us to come to him over and over and over. I remember telling Melissa one time, um, man, maybe we should ask people to pray for something different than the prayer that we keep telling them. I mean, are we are we sounding like a broken record because we have some things that are really deeply on our heart and we keep telling everybody the same prayer? I was afraid that people would become annoyed and start to discount the prayer because it was just the same thing that was. You know, heavy on, on, our, on our shoulders. The problem is that we think God becomes annoyed with our prayers, right? But our persistence, as we see here with this woman, our persistence is how God draws close to us and then grows our faith in Him as we keep coming to Him in dependence over and over again as the opportunity for Him to give us that assurance that He is listening and that He is hearing. Turn with me to Luke 18. Luke 18, and we're going to read a parable. Luke 18, the parable of the persistent widow. It kind of gives us a little more context for this. And it says, Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So when we see always to pray and not to lose heart, it means that somehow when we are always praying, that that is the very mechanism that God uses in our hearts so that we don't lose heart. It says in verse 2, he said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. And for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Verse 6, and the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? There's nothing there that tells us about the frequency other than it should be frequent, Will he delay long over them, it says? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? What Jesus found in this woman, in this Gentile woman, was faith. So let's bring it to today. Let's bring it in our context of what this day is. Maybe you're a mom today. Maybe you're a mom that has prayed for a child maybe you're a mom that has prayed for a husband for years and it feels like god must be exhausted by your constant pleading you know what this shows us this shows us that he never is this shows us that he doesn't ignore our desperateness this shows us that he responds moms to your faith he hears you he answers you So who is acceptable to Jesus? First off, the persistent. Secondly, the lowly. The lowly. The woman begs. She begs. The people beg Jesus. They both put themselves in a needy place before Jesus. They weren't too proud to be beggars at the feet of Jesus. Stay with me in Luke 18. Let's pick up in verse 9. Look at what it says here. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, a pretty hated dude. Think IRS. Sorry if you're an IRS guy. Verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But this guy, this tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humble, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted." I mean, are we too proud like the Pharisees, or do we know who we really are? Do we know that in actuality, we are like this lowly man in this parable who was justified and exalted for his humility before God because he begged God for mercy like the woman Who had the daughter with the unclean spirit, like the man who was disabled, people who were out of options, who went before the foot of Jesus and said, Please help me, I got nothing. That's acceptable to Jesus. The persistent, the lowly, and finally, the outsiders. This man and this woman were outsiders. And they were not only outsiders, but they were outsiders that had hit a wall. I mean, l- look at their situation. There's nobody here, even though you can't draw a one-to-one necessarily, there's nobody here that hasn't ever been out of options. There's nobody here that has never been in a place where you say, I have nothing left to offer. I have no rights or privileges here to expect anything. I have no entitlements. They knew that they couldn't fix their problems. The Pharisees on the other hand, these brothers were insiders, weren't they? They were churched people who thought they needed nothing Jesus had to offer because of their status. So again, you know, we, we battle with these things, don't we, in some of our own ways. You now, maybe for some of you, you know, you were born into a Christian home. You know what that means? It means you're going to battle deeply with an inherited status That Jesus, by the way, says, has absolutely zero value unless you come to him as the lowly, wretched sinner you really are. Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) In John 8, the Pharisees told Jesus they were righteous because they came from the family line of Abraham you know Jesus responded to them? He said, actually, um, if you want to chat, fellas, for a minute, the truth is that you are of your father, the devil. Because whoever is of God hears the word of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Dude! Because, see, when we come to God based on our own sense of worth and worthiness, it's actually the opposite thing happening. It's when we accept who we are and we come to him in humility that we receive his crumbs, which aren't really crumbs at all because he gives us himself. He heals our uncleanness. He opens our ears. He releases our tongue that we might see and behold his glory. The battle in our hearts is thinking of ourselves wrongly. Because when we think of ourselves wrongly, we're thinking of God wrongly. What we learn is that coming to Jesus with nothing is the key to gaining everything. Because the only thing any of us bring to Jesus is our sin. And we should remember that Jesus only receives those who bring nothing to him, but their inability to do nothing. We struggle with that. Man, do we struggle with that. Because when we go to parties, we bring a gift, right? When we go to dinner at a friend's house, we bring a bottle of wine. We're allowed to talk about that now. But when we bring something to God, other, we are always allowed to talk about that. When we bring something to God other than our sin to make us well, we're ignoring his son who became sin for us. We need to drop that. We need to drop that pretense. We need to drop all of our pretense and bring everything to God. What might he do if you came to him daily with everything that crosses the path of your hearts, your future that you're worried about, your past that plagues you, the sickness that is hanging over you, your health, your kids who are eternally troubling you. Sorry, kiddos. Your career, that is in flux constantly. Your education, that is never going to be what it should have been. Your hope, which is wobbly. Your dreams, which haven't come true. Your fears, which are ever-present. Your worries, which are just like evolving around your head. The confusion that all of it brings. What would happen if you went to him daily with those things. But what we see here is that he will turn those concerns of your heart into confidence, into a confidence in him because your focus has shifted from your cares to his care for you. Because the truth is that this you are that fearful woman. You are. You approach God in fear. You wonder if he will listen, knowing you don't deserve anything. Just give me your crumbs, Jesus. It'll be enough. And Jesus listens, and he acts in mercy and grace. You are the deaf man. We are. You're the deaf man. There's no other options. But you go to God. You give it all to him. He listens. He acts in mercy and in grace. Because those who come to Jesus as they truly are receive all that Jesus is when they come to him by faith. Now, what's not explicit but implicit in this passage is a warning, I think. And here's the warning, is that the Pharisees don't ask. They attack. They don't ask anything of Jesus. They attack. So, listen, when we don't ask God... We attack his character because we're saying he is unable now to supply all of our needs. In other words, to not ask God is to say that he's not faithful enough to answer you. To not ask God is to attack his character like the Pharisees because he said, I will supply all things in Christ Jesus. He said in Romans 8, speaking through the Apostle Paul, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? When we don't ask, we are in effect attacking the character of God because we're not believing that he is going to do what he promised in our lives. That's interesting, isn't it? You know, if you walk through Freer Field, it's one of my favorite spots, you'll see all the green finally coming in, right? A month ago, it did, it, it did not look green. It looked brown, it looked barren, and my thought as I'm, as I'm walking through always is, uh, like, will it, you know, will it stay this way? Is this the year it never changes? Not that it won't be green, but how will all the barrenness be, be filled, right? Because it looks so sparse. Now, if you go visit Freer this afternoon and take a nice, nice Mother's Day walk, all right, you'll see that it's overflowing with green, right? It's fat with greenness. It's dense with leaves. I always have my doubts, right? But the woods always come back to life. The leaves always return. The birds sing so loudly you can barely think straight. Listen, God is good enough to make one tiny wooded area in Ashland, green again. And nobody asks him to do it. Who will he not restore and make new again to those who persistently ask in humility? Who will he not do that for? He does all things well. He doesn't always make us physically or circumstantially well, but he makes our hearts well when we cast our unwell hearts at the foot of the cross. What are those unwell things in your life? Is Jesus Lord over them? Your prodigal children? Is Jesus Lord over them? Your lack of trust in God over your finances? Your inability to rest? Your compulsion to work seven days a week? Hammer it out. Do you approach Jesus persistently and humbly when he has revealed the unwell things in your life? Because you know what? The same tenderness we see Jesus offer these outsiders is available to us, and it's never in short supply. Do you, do you see the story? Listen, do you see the story that this man and this woman were given? Forever, this woman would tell the story of the time Jesus healed her daughter. Forever, this man would tell the story of the time Jesus opened his ears and released his tongue. Jesus became their story. They would tell the story of the one who does all things well. Do you see the wonder and the glory here? When Jesus makes Himself the main Story in your life because you are persistent and lowly before Him. Is Jesus Lord over the unwell things in your life? Because those who come to Jesus as they truly are receive all that Jesus is when they come to Him. By faith. Until you bring him everything, not some things, not half of your problems, but all the good, the bad, and the ugly of your life, you will continue spinning in a web of conflict and disunity and lack of peace. But all things well will be done for all those who bring their unwell hearts to Jesus in faith. And we have an opportunity to do this now as we take communion together and remember that in Christ we have our everything. Let's pray. God, forgive us for thinking that we have to come to you, come before you in a way that doesn't show all of our weaknesses and all of our sin and all of our desperateness. Lord, open up our hearts to be persistent and be humble before You and to receive the forgiveness and the hope and the peace and the lastingness that comes because of the cross. Because Your death on the cross made that possible for us. Lord, let us be honest before You like this man and like this woman, we're honest before you. Lord, let us receive the tenderness and the care. Lord, write the story of you, of yourself, not our changed circumstances. Write the story of you on our hearts so that we can behold your face and we can share and rejoice in the hope and the change and the glory that is found only in Christ. Lord, thank you that this is possible because of the cross. Lord, humble our hearts to come before you. Today we pray in Christ's name. Amen.